So Philippians chapter 3, the letter to the Philippians, the apostle Paul was writing this letter while he was under house arrest. So he was under house arrest, he was chained to a guard, and those guards would be changed ever so often. So I'm sure he was witnessing to those Roman soldiers that were chained to him. And uh, so even though he was under house arrest and he couldn't go out and teach and preach and evangelize, the Lord still allowed him to minister even in that situation. And he said in one of his letters that it's good that I've been arrested. It's good that I've been imprisoned because now the whole household of Caesar knows about Christ. The entire Praetorian Guard knows about Christ. So um, he was able to witness to the different uh, soldiers that were chained up to him. And as a result, he was able to share the gospel within the Roman government, which was pretty amazing. Now, people call Philippians the letter of joy. And it's kind of ironic because this joy that the Apostle Paul speaks about and this joy that the Apostle Paul had came out of suffering. So it was the pathway to suffering that led to his joy, which seems very ironic to us. So I just want to touch on a few passages within the letter of Philippians. So we're going to begin with Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to start with verses 4 through 6. <clears throat> now this is talking about knowing Christ. Now, just in case I may slip into Hebrew back and forth, um, everybody knows who Jesus Christ is, but you may not know who Yeshua the Messiah is. That's just the Hebrew name for Jesus. So I may say Yeshua, so if I do, you'll know who I'm talking about. So in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, the Apostle Paul, which in Hebrew is known as Rav Shaul, so just to give you a little background, a Jewish boy went to Hebrew school as soon as he could walk and talk, and up until about the age of 13. Then he had a choice, because he was considered an adult within the community at 13 years of age. He could further his education and become a rabbi, or he could go with his father and learn a trade. And so the Apostle Paul went to become a rabbi. He studied under a very famous rabbi known as Gamaliel, and he's even quoted in the Talmud, which is the compendium of Jewish knowledge and interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures. And so he not only became a rabbi, but he came, you know, like a rabbi would almost be like you got your master's degree. And uh, a rav would be like getting your doctorate. So the apostle Paul was called Rav Shaul in the Hebrew, which he was more than just a rabbi. He was a, he was a rav. He actually had his PhD, if you will. So in Philippians chapter 3, starting with verse 4, he kind of talks about some of the perks that he had. So he says, though I might have also confidence in the flesh. In other words, he was basically saying, if anybody has anything to brag about, I have a few things I could brag about. Though I might uh, also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. He's like, you know what, there's a lot of people who may have bragging rights or reasons to, um, uh, to have confidence in the flesh, but I have much more. And he says, verse 5, circumcise the eighth day. So when a Jewish baby is born, they are circumcised at eight days years old, and they enter into the Abrahamic covenant. Now, it's interesting because the blood in a baby's body doesn't start clotting until the eighth day. So that's the perfect time to circumcise a child. So it says he was circumcised the eighth day 
of the stock of Israel. So he's like, I'm part of the nation of Israel. And he gets a little bit more specific of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was something to brag about because Benjamin produced the very first king of Israel. King Saul was the very first king of Israel, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin has always had a very uh, prestigious reputation. And then after, the, uh, after uh, Saul was king, we know that David from the tribe of Judah became king. And that's the line of the kings of Judah. And eventually Jesus, Yeshua the Messiah, came from that line of Judah. So he says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So basically he says, I have a pretty prestigious reputation among the Hebrew nation, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Now this may shock you, even though the Apostle Paul converted, in other words, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, he still called himself a Pharisee. I know we paint Pharisees as bad guys, but not all Pharisees were bad guys. You had Joseph of Arimathea that was a righteous man. He, uh, um, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, you also had Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a very righteous man. Both of those two fought for Jesus uh, in front of the court uh, so, you know, to try to get him out of being crucified. They were very righteous men. So not all of the Pharisees were bad guys. Uh, but it seems like that the New Testament highlights the corruptness within the Pharisees, especially the higher ups. So you basically what was wrong with the Pharisees is they added laws on top of God's laws and made their laws more important than God's laws. And they were keeping all these laws outwardly, but not inwardly. So thou shalt not kill. Well, they didn't go around murdering anybody, but inside they hated people in their heart. And Jesus said, if you hate somebody, that's just as bad as murdering them. Now, they didn't go jumping in bed with women they, that weren't their wives. But Jesus said, if you, if you look on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her. So in actuality, Jesus made following the law harder because it's easy to do stuff on the outside. It's harder to do it on the inside in private where nobody knows what you're thinking or what you're doing. So it's interesting, too, because the Apostle Paul at one point was accused of being a ringleader of the Nazarene sect of Judaism, which the Nazarene sect of Judaism was that sect of Judaism that believed that Jesus was the divine son of God and was the Messiah. So it wasn't a contradiction or a conflict for the Apostle Paul to say, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, but I'm also a Pharisee. Now, there is also places in Acts where it talks about Pharisees coming to know the Lord. And they were zealous for God's law, but they were Pharisees. So there was a lot of Pharisees that ended up coming to Christ at the beginning in Acts. So circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. So just as we have different sects of Christianity, and each sect of Christianity has different customs and traditions, that's the way it was in Judaism. So when he says touching the law of Pharisees, like that's how I kept God's law in a Pharisaical type way. That was the tradition that I followed. Others followed an Essene tradition. Some would follow a Sadducee tradition. Some would follow a Nazarene tradition. And then it says, verse six, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. 
touching the righteousness uh, which is in the law blameless. So he was very careful to be very observant of God's commandments, not only God's commandments, but the traditions that were attached to God's commandments that the Pharisees come up with. So that was verses four through six. Now, being taught under Gamaliel meant that the Apostle Paul was in line to become one of the uh, judges on the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish Supreme Court. So he had a lot of reputation. He was taught under a very famous rabbi. He was next in line to be on the Sanhedrin. He was highly educated. Not only was he highly educated in God's word and in Judaism in general, but he was also very highly educated in secular knowledge, uh, such as Greek and Roman philosophy. Because if you remember, at one point, he was on Mars Hill philosophizing with the philosophers and they were pretty impressed about how much he knew he was able to quote secular poets and and he knew different languages he was a roman citizen so he had a very high prestigious reputation so he had a lot according to the world he had a lot to brag about according to the world so he's just trying to bring the point he was giving his pedigree giving all of of you know his bragging rights basically and so when it comes right down to it when it, uh, when it comes right down to it, this is what he says about all of the stuff that he could possibly brag about. He says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me? What things I had to gain by this? The, the benefits I had of being circumcised. The benefits that I had being a Hebrew of Hebrews. The benefits that I had being of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Being taught under Gamaliel. Uh, uh, sitting in line uh, to be ready to sit on the Sanhedrin all these things and having a great reputation of being a righteous man so he says but the things which were gained to me i count loss for christ so all those things he was willing to give up in exchange for christ he he no longer cared about his reputation he no longer cared about his accolades no longer really cared about where he come from all those things that he could brag about according to the world standards he says i counted as loss for christ i exchanged it for christ i gave those things up for christ because it was worth it because the things in this world can only get you so far um all right so moving on but what things that were gained to me those i counted loss for christ yea doubtless i counted all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He gave it all up for Christ. Now, he didn't stop being a Jew. He didn't stop being a Hebrew. He didn't stop being of the stock of Israel or of the tribe of Benjamin, just because he knew Christ didn't undo his circumcision. But he did lose his position in Judaism, which was a very powerful position. He persecuted the church. He could put to death virtually anybody he wanted. He could arrest virtually anybody he wanted. He was going to be able to sit on the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Supreme Court. So he had a lot of power and a lot of reputation. And he says, I gave that all up. I gave it all up so I could know Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He suffered the loss of all things. His old life and all the power and prestige and reputation he had in his old life, he counted as loss. And he was suffering as a result of that. Because turning his back on those things, he was being persecuted for his knowledge of Christ. I have suffered the loss of all things 
and do count them as dung. That's just a King James way of saying poop. The, the Greek word is skubala. It's kind of a funny word, skubala. But he says, I count them as dung. I count them as a hot steaming pile of dog crap to be very crude. He says, I count it as dung that I may win Christ. So no matter how much power, how much money, how much reputation, he says, that's all dog poop compared to knowing Christ. And even though I'm suffering because I'm knowing Christ, it's well worth it. Now, it reminds me of stories of people in Hollywood, famous people who, who give up their celebrity status or give up their money or lose their wealth or their fortune. There was uh, an actor, his name is Neil uh, McDonough, and he had a conviction that he was not going to kiss anybody but his wife. And as a result, he got blackballed in Hollywood because he would not kiss another woman, you know, during a movie or during a TV show he was filming. He's like, no, I'm not going to do it. These lips are only for my wife. And they thought, you are a prude. You're old fashioned. You know, it's what's the big deal? It's just acting. It's not real. It doesn't mean anything. He says, I don't care. I have a conviction and I'm following that conviction. And as a result, they're like, you're never going to work in Hollywood again. He lost his ma mansion. He lost his money. He lost a lot of things. But he said it was all worth it because I treasure my wife. And God is using his loss to be a witness to other people. God, he's used, God is using his loss, in other words, to reach a wider range of people because he had that star power. Yes. Yes. Right. That's a good example. Mel Gibson would be this would be another example. He's kind of been blackballed and 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 labeled as a crazy person because he did Passion of the Christ. Um, the guy who played Jesus in Passion of the Christ actually got death threats for playing Jesus. And now Mel Gibson is going to make another movie kind of, you know, to, to follow up on the Passion of Christ. And the guy who's playing Jesus is getting death threats again. He's like, I don't care. I'm still doing it. And Mel Gibson's getting flack from it. He's like, I don't care. I'm still doing it. So it's interesting to see famous people putting their reputation, their money, and their fame on the line because of their conviction. So basically what they're saying is I'm counting all of Hollywood. I'm counting all of my Academy Awards and all of my Oscars and all of the movies and money that I've made and all of my cars and mansions. I'm counting all that is lost for Christ. And I have a great respect for people who, who give up those things for Christ. And we can, we can probably come up with more and more examples. So you can kind of now see from our modern examples of what it was for the Apostle Paul. Uh, okay, so moving on to Philippians 3, verse 9. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death. So, a lot, of, a lot of people would consider money, fame, power, reputation as very important. Things in this world to strive for. And the Apostle Paul said, you know what? I'm willing to give all that up just so that I can know Christ. Now, what did he mean by knowing Christ? 
He says that I may know him, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings uh, being made conformable to his death. So what was important to the Apostle Paul was not his past and not his reputation, even though he had a lot to brag about. But what he wanted to brag about was knowing Christ. Knowing Christ was important to him. Now, there's knowing Christ and then there's knowing Christ. A lot of people you ask, well, do you know Jesus? Well, yeah, I know Jesus. Which they mean I've heard of him. I've read about him. I know about him. I've read the Bible. I've seen movies, right? But do they really know him? Right? Knowing him is totally different. Now, Donnie here, I knew Donnie from Facebook, but I didn't know Donnie until just recently. We would, uh, we would communicate back and forth on Facebook Messenger, and we was like, yeah, it'd be nice to meet one day, and we were Facebook friends, so I knew about him, but I didn't really know him until he came to Harvest House, and we discovered we've been Facebook friends, discovered that our daughters went to university together, we started hanging out together, and we started to get to know each other. Now I can say, I know Donnie. I don't know about him. I know Donnie. I know him now. I know he's got a soft heart. He's got a tender heart. He's got a giving heart. I know he's a good guy. I know he loves the Lord. I know he'll, he, would, he would make a fool of himself if he knew it was going to bring somebody to the Lord. So that's what I know about Donnie. I could say I knew about him before, but now I can say I know him. And that's what the Apostle Paul was saying about Christ. I don't just want to know about him. I want to know him. Knowing him. Knowing him by having a personal relationship with him. So it says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death. Now let me give you an example of knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Because the Lord chastised me. I was spending copious amounts of time reading the Bible, studying the Bible, you know, doing my devotions, going really deep into the scriptures, reading different commentaries, studying the particular words and language that were in the text. And I thought by this that I was having a relationship with God. And he chastised me because I mistook my Bible study for intimacy with him. Now, reading the Bible is great. But reading the Bible, you get to know about God. But I wasn't having a personal relationship with him. I was just learning and knowing about him. And that's different than knowing God. So what did I have to do to get to know God? I actually had to put the Bible to the side for a little bit. And I sat out on my front porch. And I was looking at the birds, feeding at the bird feeder and flocking around the trees. And then I just started praying and talking to God from my heart. And as I was talking to God from my heart, I began to thank him for his blessings. I began to thank him for all the beauty that I saw. And it was at that point that I was becoming intimate with him. See, at first I was learning about him through the scripture, which is great, but I wasn't spending time with him. I wasn't being intimate with him. And that's what I was missing. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about to here, that I may know him and know the power of his resurrection. So do you want to read about Jesus' biography or do you actually want to get to know him by spending time with him? And those two are, are, are two totally different things. 
So it's one thing to read about somebody, and it's another thing to actually have a personal relationship with them. So that's the first thing I wanted to tackle in Philippians. The second thing is in chapter 4, beginning with verse 11. Chapter 4, beginning with verse 11. So we're actually going to go to the last part of the verse, which says, I have learned, the Apostle Paul says, I have learned in whatever state I am in, therewise be content. I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. So we're going to take this verse and we're going to break down these words to really understand what the Apostle Paul was saying. So he says, I have learned. This Greek word for learn means to increase one's knowledge, to be informed, to learn by use, to learn by practice and habit. So when the Apostle Paul says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content, he didn't learn about it by reading a self-help book. He didn't read about it by going to a self-help seminar. He learned about it by actually going through a process which would cause him to learn about contentment. So what's the best way to learn about contentment? Suffer. That's the best way to learn about contentment is suffering. The best way to learn patience is to encounter uh, areas in your life where you have the greatest impatience. You want to learn to be patient? Stand in a bank line. You want to learn to be patient? Stand in a grocery line. And I guarantee you, you stand there and you're like, oh, well, that line's shorter. And as soon as you move over to the shorter line, that line starts zipping by and you're stuck again. Waiting twice as long as you would if you would have stayed in the original line. Or you're on the road. Speed limit says 70 clicks and the guy's going 50 clicks. You're like, would you go? You, you know, your patience is being tested. You want to learn about patience? You got to have yourself being put in situations where you become impatient. That's the only way that you can learn about patience. So it's the same thing with contentment. Contentment is being satisfied with wherever you're at, with whatever's going on. So probably the greatest way to learn about contentment is through suffering. The greatest way to learn about contentment is through trials, troubles, tribulations, crises in your life, persecution. Those are ways to learn contentment. And boy, the Apostle Paul learned about contentment because he suffered quite a bit. So I have learned, again, this word learn means to increase one's knowledge, to be informed, to learn by use of practice and habit. So as the saying goes, practice makes perfect. You know, if you want to learn how to play guitar, you're not going to get good unless you practice and practice every single day. And the more you practice, the better you get. So he says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Whatsoever state in the Greek, it means what is. The implication is one's condition or state of being. So wherever you're at right now, whatever you're doing right now, whatever's going on in your life right now, that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. The present, the here and now. And the present and the here and now while he was writing this was he was chained to a Roman soldier under house arrest, waiting to go to court, which eventually he would be beheaded as a result of that. So it wasn't a very good place to be. Nobody wants to be on under house arrest. Nobody wants to be forced to stay somewhere that they don't want to be. But this is where Paul was, and he learned how to be content even under house arrest. 
So I have learned in whatsoever state I am in, therewith to be content. So it says to be, to be content. To be means to exist, to be present in the moment. Now we live in a time where it's very hard to be present in the moment because we're always living in the future. When you're at work, all you're thinking about is your break time, right? You're at work and you're like, oh, when's break? I can't wait to have that coffee. So you're living in the future. You're not living in the here and now. Um, a lot of times, let's just be honest. Sometimes we're here at church and uh, maybe you're, you know, your stomach's growling and you're thinking, what am I going to eat once church is out? Maybe I'll go to Burger King. Maybe I'll go to, to Little Pizza House. I don't, right? You're, you're not living in the present. You're not living in the moment. You're living in the future. And the reason you're living in the future is because you're not content in the present. A lot of people at work don't want to be at work. They want to be on break. So they're living in the future in their head in their break time because they're not content where they are. Sometimes we're not content in church because we're hungry and we want to fill our belly. So we're thinking of the future. So that's what this, this Greek word to be means. It means to exist and to be present in the moment. I have learned in whatsoever state that I am in, therewith to be content. This word content. Uh, brings about the connotation that it's independent of external circumstances. Contentment in the Greek means being content with one's lot, the hand you were dealt. So I have learned that whatsoever state I am in, therewith to be content. So basically he says, I've learned because of the trials, troubles, tribulations, persecution, and suffering that I'm enduring, I've learned how to live in the moment. I've learned how to enjoy it. I've learned how to be content and live in that particular moment. And we can learn a lesson from that. So verse 12 says, the Apostle Paul goes on to kind of elaborate on what it means to be content in, in whatever situation you're in. He says, I know both how to be abased, which that word abased means to be made low. I know what it means to be humble. I know both how to be a base, how to be humble, and I know how to abound. In other words, I know what it means to have a lot of things. I know, basically he's saying feast or famine. Whether I'm in a famine or I'm in a feast, I've learned how to be content in both situations. So we could read it like this. I know how to be without or how to do without. And I know how to get by with a lot. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and both to suffer need. Yes. Yes. Right. Right, right. Because so you shouldn't be so depressed if you're poor or whatever. It's going back. You shouldn't be so depressed if you can't buy and then rich or rebellious or whatever. You shouldn't be so happy and caught up in it. And that's your focus on God. Right, and exactly. 
Yeah, that's very well put. Thank you. Very well said. So basically, to, to go off on what she was saying is what happens on the inside is more important than what happens on the outside. Because when you are having, when you're in, in an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you can be in a constant state of happiness and joy, no matter what's going on on the outside, because your outside circumstances are never guaranteed. Your outside circumstances always change, right? You could lose your job. You can get evicted. You can, you can get an offender bender. A loved one may die. Your dog may run out in the street, God forbid, and get hit, right? Uh, you, you may get in a fight with your friend. Again, you might win the lottery. You, you know, you might get a phone call from, from a long lost loved one. I mean, good or bad, it doesn't matter. Outward circumstances are always going to change. It's like New Brunswick weather. You don't like it, stick around. It'll change in five or 10 minutes. So our outward situation, you know, our, our contentment is not contingent upon what's going on out here. Because there's another passage, and I forget where the citation is, but it says nothing can separate us from the love of God. You know, not, not powers, not angels, not demons, not persecution, not this, not that. You know, when you're in the center of God's hand, nobody can pluck you out of his hand. So having that inner life, that personal relationship with, with God through Jesus, having that inner life is the key and the secret of contentment because outward situations change. And the Lord's been teaching me a lot about that because I've, I'm usually a very impatient and a very anxious kind of person. So whenever the delicate balance of my life is upset, I usually kind of freak out. So let's say, let's okay, the other day we had a lot of rain, right? I go downstairs, my basement's flooded. Yeah, for real. Five years, yeah, five years ago I would have freaked out. Five years ago, I'd say, oh, no, the basement's flooded. What are we going to do? This is going to be expensive. There's going to be renovations. What have we lost? What's ruined? We're going to have to throw away. You know, oh, no, how am I going to get the water out of the basement? I would just be freaking out. But the Lord has done a work in me, and I went down and I'm like, oh, the basement's flooded. Okay, well, I'm going to call my cousin Donnie, and he's got a sump pump, and we're going to pump the water out of that. I've got a shop vac and whatever the sump pump doesn't get, I'll get it with the shop vac. And then I'll add what the shop vac don't get, I'll get it with the dehumidifier. So I was, I was pleasantly surprised at myself. And the Lord was saying, he was patting me on the head saying, good boy, look, look, how, look how far you've gone. Look how far you've come. Because a few years ago, you would have been freaking out. You'd just, you would have lost it. But you, you're, you're taking this in stride. So, you know, we took care of the situation. And, you know, the only casualty was like a 10-pack of paper towels. Because this area in the basement is kind of like our pantry. We store a lot of different things down there. The only thing that got ruined was a package of paper towels. No big deal. No big, big loss. My deep freeze was fine. Um, I had other things. I had a kerosene heater down there. I had a lot of things down there that could have gotten ruined, but they didn't. And that's the only thing that got ruined was paper towels. Big deal. So the Lord really looked out for us. So now the basement's dry and we didn't lose anything. So we're really not out any money. Just sweat equi equity is really what we're out of. So the Lord has been teaching me how to be content when things like this happen. 
Because in the past, I'd get anxious, or I'd get angry, or I'd get impatient. And whatever was happening out here would affect what's in here. And the Lord's slowly teaching me how not to allow that to happen. Yes, hallelujah. It's something to be thankful for. And I mean, I, it, my wife is thankful too because she had to put, out with, put up with me being crazy running around like a chicken with my head cut off. So it says, yes, God bless her. She's a saint for sure. Now, so in verse, I'll read verse 12 again. I know how to be a base and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And the very famous verse, which we've probably all memorized, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Now, where does Christ live? in our hearts, inside us. I can do all things on my own. I can do all things on my own. No, that's not what the scripture says because I'm human. I'm a fallen, sinful, wretched human being that has faults and flaws. Like I said, I used to freak out over situations. I used to get very anxious, very impatient. Those are my flaws. So I can't do these things in and of myself because I'm going to fail and fall flat on my face. But Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. So when I'm finding myself freaking out, I'm like, okay, Lord, okay, Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace. I need your peace right now. And so I, it, well, for lack of a better term, not to sound new agey, but it's almost like you channel that peace through Christ, right? Because you have that personal relationship. And it says he gives you that peace that passes all understanding. It doesn't make sense to me. I should be freaking out right now. But I'm not because I have peace. Why? Because I've conjured this peace up for myself. Because I've sat in the lotus position for hours on end. Oh, oh, and meditated and achieved this peace. No, this peace has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's Christ who, who empowers me, enables me, gives me the strength to power through whatever situation I'm finding myself in. So I know how to be content because I know how to have peace in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's right. 4.13, Philippians 4.13. So range and spectrum is irrelevant. Paul went from riches to rags. He did. He went from riches to rags. When you were a Pharisee and you were on the Sanhedrin and you were a high mucky muck in Judaism like the Apostle Paul was, you had wealth and power and prestige and, yeah, reputation and authority. And um, he was a Roman citizen. And one guy said to him, wait, wait, wait a second. You're a Roman citizen? He says, I had to pay a lot of money for my Roman citizenship. So being a Roman citizen, meant that you probably had a lot of money if you were able to buy your citizenship. So Paul had a lot of money. So he went from riches to rags. He went from, he went from riches to rags. He went from power to plebeian. You know what that word plebeian means? Plebeian means you're just a pedestrian. Plebeians, yeah, you're just, you're just a pawn on the chessboard. You're a nobody. You're, you're a grunt. So Christ... Huh? Yes. 
So Christ is the key to contentment. Our contentment is in him and makes external circumstances irrelevant. So I want to read to you um, a passage from John. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, starting with verse 28. And I kind of alluded to this verse before. So in John chapter 10, starting with verse 28, it says, And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And verse 29 says, My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So first he says, nobody can pluck you out of my hand, and then nobody can pluck you out of the Father's hand because I and the Father are one. So when you're in Christ, you're in the most secure, safest place you could ever be. Now, let me tell you the story about a martyr. Now, we know the Apostle Paul went through a lot, but there's a story of, I think this was in Vietnam, if I'm not mistaken. So this man got arrested for being a Christian. And he was put in jail. So they, they stripped him of his clothes. They just gave him just enough to keep him alive, enough food to keep him alive. He, you know, they, they, they kept him locked up. He never saw the sun. But guess what he did? He started singing. Just like Paul and Silas. After Paul and Silas got their backs ripped open and beat to death, and they were in stocks, they had every reason to be depressed, they had every reason to complain, they had every reason to be sad, they had every reason to be pessimistic, but they started praising the Lord, and it was Paul and Silas that brought about the first jailhouse rock. It wasn't Elvis Presley, because <laughs> the jailhouse shook, right, and, and they were released. So... Kind of the same thing with this, this Christian in Vietnam. He started singing. Well, the guard's like, shut up. And he couldn't shut up because he was praising the Lord. So that guard took the butt of his rifle and right through the bars, smashed that guy in the mouth, busted his lip, busted his teeth. And then he couldn't talk right, let alone sing right. So he's like, guard's like, ah, there, I finally shut that guy up thinking that that would stop him from praising the Lord, thinking that would stop him from singing. Did that Christian get depressed because, oh no, my, my lips split open, I'm bleeding all over the place, I lost my teeth, I can't talk right, my mouth's injured, I can't sing, Lord. He started humming. Fine, if I can't sing, I'm going to hum. He hummed until they finally shot him in the head. That's the only way they would be able to shut him up. But was that even a bad thing? No, because he got to go home. <laughs> so even in that communist Vietnamese prison, that Christian learned how to be content. It didn't matter if he didn't have any clothes. It didn't matter if he didn't have any food. Because he had Jesus in his heart, and that's all that he needed. And it caused him to sing and praise no matter what his outward circumstances is. He couldn't sing? No worries. I can hum. And then finally, they put a bullet in his brain and sent him to be with the Lord. So in kind of like manner, the Apostle Paul went through troubles and trials and, and tribulations too. I want to read from one of Paul's letters, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39. Romans chapter 8, 37 through 39. <laughs> 
So we just read in John where Yeshua is encouraging uh, the disciples because he says, look, nobody can pluck you out of my hand or the Father's hand because we're one and the same. And then in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39, he says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. And he says, for I am persuaded. This word persuaded means I am convinced. You can't change my mind. You can't change my convictions. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here Paul is saying the outward circumstances can't change what's on the inside. What's on the inside is a constant regardless of what's on the outside. Doesn't matter what's going on. Doesn't matter if you live or die. Doesn't matter if there's angels or, or demons. Doesn't matter if there's earthly powers or spiritual powers. Doesn't mean if, if, if you know, there's anything. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is one plus zero equal? One plus zero equals what? One. So Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So I'm going to read a passage that gives you the context of what we just read in Philippians chapter 4, verses um, uh, 11 through 13. So let me just read that again real quick, and then we'll jump to, uh, to those other passages. So he says, I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. I know how to be a base, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to give you the context of that passage we just read. And that context comes from Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. So the Apostle Paul endured a lot in order to reach the Philippian people. And, and, and the Philippians didn't receive him at first. So in Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul tells us everything that he's gone through. And all this stuff that I'm about to mention did not cause him to lose his joy. Not cause, it didn't cause him to lose his contentment. So in Acts chapter 16, beginning with 12, he says, And from there to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath we went out to the city by the riverside, where prayer um, was wont to be made, and we sat down and spoke to the women which resorted there. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended to the things which were spoken of by Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide with me there. And she constrained us. 
And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. So this woman was a slave, and they were using her powers connected to demonic forces that caused her to tell fortunes and futures, and they were making money off her because she was a fortune teller. And it says, the same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, these men are servants of the Most High God which show us the way of salvation. And this did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he came out of her that same hour. And when her master saw that their hope of gain was gone, they caught Paul and Silas, and they drew them into the marketplace to the rulers. And they brought them to the magistrate, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither do we observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded them to be beat. So here, Paul telling this demon to come out of this girl so she can't fortune tell anymore, and the whole city turns on him. They take him to the, to the high mucky mucks of that city, and then it says... And the multitude rose up against them and the magistrates and rent off their clothes. They literally tore their clothes off. I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes in, in, in high school, kids would pull pranks in gym and they'd, they, it's called they'd, they'd pants you. You know what that means? They'd pull your pants down and you're like, oh no, right? It's embarrassing. So imagine how modest the Apostle Paul was, being a Jew. There was a lot of modesty and conduct rules involved there. And just him being naked in front of everybody because he had his clothes ripped off. That's very embarrassing, very disconcerting. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, not only did they rip their clothes off, they started beating them. And they laid many stripes upon them and cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safe, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison. So they were under maximum security. There was probably no windows. They were probably in a deep, dark dungeon and made their feet fast with stocks. Now, that's uncomfortable, having your feet shackled. So they, they were pretty much naked. Their back was ripped open from being beat, and now they had their feet put in the stocks. Very uncomfortable. And at midnight, which means they probably had insomnia because they couldn't sleep, probably because their back hurt so much. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises to God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awakened out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword, and would have killed himself. Because if you lose a prisoner, you pay with your life. If a prisoner escapes, you're dead. He would have killed him, supposing that the prisoners had fled. But Paul cried out loud, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And they spoke to them the word of the Lord and to all that were in the house. And he took them that same hour at night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and his, and his immediately. 
And when he had brought them into the house, he sent meat, that is food for them, and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. So Paul was content despite being unjustly beaten and imprisoned. They sang. As Paul wrote in the letter of the Philippians, he was under house arrest, facing persecution, um, being falsely uh, accused of uh, false teaching. There was infighting going on in the congregation. It's enough to make one discontented. And with all this, he claims that he's learned how to be content in every situation. Um, so Paul's needs were minimal. In 1 Timothy 6.8, he says, if you have food and clothes, thereby be content. If you have those things, that's all you need to be content. So a modern translation of Philippians 4.11 could be, I have learned how to be content in any given circumstance. Now, is everybody still hanging with me? All right, so let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, we started at 7. How long does uh, Aaron usually teach? About 8.30? Okay, I promise I'll have you out before 10 o'clock. So, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. <laughs> I'm going to hold you hostage. So, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with verse 24, we're going to see all the things that the Apostle Paul had went through. We already read how he was unjustly beaten and imprisoned and stripped, and yet he's telling the Philippians that I'm happy. Even though these things happen to me, you can't steal my joy. You can't steal my happiness. You can't steal my contentment because that's something on the inside that you can't take away from me. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 24, Paul says, Of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, saved one. So basically take 39 times five. I'm not good at math, but 39 times 5, what number do you get? Whatever number you get out of that is how many times he had stripes laid on his back. So he says, of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes save one. Three times, thrice, I was beaten with rods. So he was whipped five times. He was beaten with rods, in other words, caned uh, three times. He says, once I was stoned. And not the cannabis marijuana kind of stoned, literally taking stones and throwing them at you until you're dead. They threw rocks and stones at him until he wasn't moving and they assumed he was dead. So he says, I was stoned once. Three times I suffered shipwreck. I don't know about you, but if I was shipwrecked once, that'd be the last time I'd get on a boat. So he says he was shipwrecked three times. And night and day, I have been in the deep. In other words, he spent 24-hour periods in the water. Shark-infested water, cold water. You know, like Jack on the Titanic. You know, you remember that movie, right? Okay. Uh, and night and day, I have been in the deep. In journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, so, you know, going to and from, traveling on the road, there's highwaymen. He probably got mugged and robbed a few times. And perils of my own countrymen, I've had my own kinsmen turn against me. And perils of the heathens, I had the pagans turn against me. And perils of the city, and perils of the wilderness, and perils of the sea, and perils among false brethren. And weariness and painfulness, and watchings often, 
in hunger and thirst and in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness. So he's been, he's, he's been starved. You know, he's been naked. Uh, he's been almost froze to death. Moving on to verse 28. Besides those things that are outside that which come upon me daily, the care of all the church. Who is weak? And am I not weak? Who is offended and not and and uh, I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. He says, I'm going to praise God anyhow, even though I was beat, whipped, shipwrecked, stoned, robbed, froze to death, betrayed, stripped naked, whatever you name it. He says, I'm if I'm I'm going to glory in my infirmities. I'm going to praise God for these things. Verse 31. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knows that I lie not. And Damascus, the governor under um, Aretas, the king, kept the city of, of the Damascenes with a garrison desirous to apprehend me. So he was actually a fugitive being hunted down, having to look behind his shoulder all the time or behind his back. And through a window in a basket, I was let down by the wall and escaped his hands. So he narrowly escaped that. So. Just think about all these things. It's enough to make anybody sad. It's enough to make anybody depressed. It's enough to make anybody discouraged. It's enough to make anybody throw in the towel and just give up. But Paul says, doesn't matter. I'm happy. It doesn't matter. I'm content. There's another passage that says, you know what? I'm in prison and there's people out there preaching the gospel to spite me. They're not preaching to save people. They're preaching to get on my nerves. He says, what do I care? At least the gospel's getting preached. Who cares what their motive is in preaching the gospel? Whether it's for their own self-glorification or to spite me or to make fun of me or try to make me feel bad that I'm in prison, I don't care. At least the gospel's being preached. Which I think is very interesting that he said that. So Paul knew what Jesus' brother James knew. So in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, says this, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. So if you want to learn patience, you've got to be put in, in situations that make you impatient. You want to learn how to be content, you've got to be put in situations that cause you to suffer. So James says in 1 verse 3, or verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, meaning various trials. James, what are you smoking? My brethren, count it all joy. In other words, be happy when you have trials. Most of the time we're like, oh no. I'm, I'm, being, I'm being gossiped about on Facebook. Oh no, somebody's mad at me. Oh no, I've lost my job. Oh no, I'm being persecuted because I'm a Christian. Oh no. But that's not what James says. He says, count it all joy. You know what? Somebody's dragging my name through the mud on Facebook. Woo! Praise God! That's the way you should react. Now, true story. At the Bible college I went to in Nashville, sometimes... Uh, you know, guys from other colleges or guys from the city would go through our campus just to make fun of us because we were Christians and we went to a Christian college. 
And one time, these three guys were just walking down the sidewalk, minding their own business, and these guys roll up, roll down the window, and take a carton of eggs and just toss eggs at them. And one guy out of the three guys went, Woo! Praise the Lord! And the other guys looked at him and said, You're a nut job. Well, wait, you just got egged. He says, Yeah, but doesn't James tell us to count it all joy? He, he took that verse literally. He found the joy in that situation. Big deal. You just have a laundry bill and you have to take a shower. Big deal. You got egged. Right? So he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or various trials, knowing this. The reason for these trials is the trying of your faith works patience. And it says, but let patience have her perfect work. Have you ever taken a cake out of the oven before it was completely done? And you dig into it and it's a little gooey, a little gritty in your mouth? It's not done. That's, that's the same. That's kind of what James is saying here. But let patience have her perfect work. Stay in the oven of trials until you're thoroughly baked. <laughs> so you don't come out half baked. But not burnt. But not burnt. That's right. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So basically, James is saying, if you learn how to be patient, if you learn how to be patient, you're not going to want anything. You won't lack for anything if you learn the secret of being patient and if you learn the secret of being content. So again, it doesn't, it's not contingent about what's out here. It's all about what's in here. So if what's out here is bothering you, you've got more work to do on the inside. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, close with a word of prayer. See, I told you I'd have you out before 10. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we just scratched the surface of what Paul was trying to tell us in his letter to the Philippians. And I, I, I mean, I did the best I could, but... Lord, I just, I just feel like I just couldn't truly convey what you were trying to tell me and what you wanted me to teach. But Lord, I'm trusting what your word says. You say in your word that your word will not return void, but it will go out and perform what you would have it to perform. It won't come back empty. So I'm just trusting that, Lord, just this meager person you have behind this pulpit tonight, that you've just used me in some way to get your message across. And for that, I praise you. Because it's all about you. It's all about your word. So I'm almost afraid, God, to pray for contentment because I know that if I say, Lord, please give us contentment, teach us how to be content, I know that I'm stirring up a hornet's nest in the spirit because, Lord, if I pray for contentment, it means that I'm inviting troubles and trials and tribulations to come my way because that's the only way that we'll learn how to be content. But, Lord, bring it on. Bring it on because we need that. It's no pain, no gain. If I don't go to the gym and make my muscles burn and ache, then my muscles aren't going to get big and strong. And it's the same spiritually. If I don't work out my spirit through troubles and trials and tribulations until it hurts, I'm not going to grow spiritually. So, Lord, give us the, the strength, the, the power, and the grace to go through these trials that you permit to come our way. It's not to destroy us. It's not to get us down. It's to strengthen us. It's to make us content. It's to make us perfect. It's to make us complete. And Lord, that's what we want. We want to be the total package for you, whatever it takes. 
So, Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.